Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast, episode 190. In this episode, I am bringing back an interview with my mentor, Genesis Peorage. This has been on the podcast before, but you're going to want to listen to this because I did a podcast with Jen a few months before she died when I was visiting her in the hospital in New York because I didn't have any equipment with me or because I was in the hospital. I had to record it on my phone. So... I released the edited file on the podcast, I think three or four years ago. And I did my best, my very best at that time to clean up the phone audio, but it was still pretty hard to hear. However, technology has improved and advanced a lot in the last four or five years. Audio technology is like night and day to where it was even then. And that means there are new, more powerful tools that can go back and clean up those original files. And that is what I have done. And it is way easier to hear. It is perfectly legible. There's no background noise. And this conversation gets its proper due. I don't think it was properly presented the first time around, unfortunately, just due to the limitations of technology. But this time, it's all here for you. So Genesis Peorage, or Jen, as I often refer to her on this podcast, was my primary mentor and teacher in magic from the age of 21 onwards. I studied with her for about seven years and I talk about her a lot on this podcast. I'm just going to read a few, just a brief little bit about Jen from her Wikipedia, just to catch up those who may be unaware of her, of her work, which you, you should definitely be aware of. Genesis Peorage, born February 1950, was an English singer, songwriter, musician, poet, performance artist, visual artist, and occultist who rose to notoriety as the founder of the Coombe Transmissions Artistic Collective and lead vocalist of seminal industrial band Throbbing Gristle. They were also a founding member of the Temple of Psychic Youth, a cult group, and fronted the experimental pop rock band Psychic TV. Born in Manchester, Peorage developed an early interest in art, occultism, and the avant-garde while at Solihull School. After dropping out of studies at the University of Hull, they moved into a countercultural commune in London and adopted... Genesis Peorage as their pseudonym. On returning to Hull, they found Ducombe Transmissions with Cozy Fanny Tootie, 
1973, they relocated to London. Coombs' confrontational performance work, dealing with such subjects as sex work, pornography, serial killers, and occultism, represented a concerted attempt to challenge societal norms and attracted the attention of the national press. Coombs' 1976 prostitution show at London's Institute of Contemporary Arts was particularly vilified by tabloids, gaining them the moniker of the Wreckers of Civilization. Peorage's band, Throb and Gristle, grew out of Coombe and were active from 1975 to 1981 as pioneers in the industrial music genre. In 1981, Peorage co-founded Psychic TV, an experimental band that from 1988 onward came under the increasing influence of Acid House. In 1981, Purich co-founded the Temple of Psychic Youth, an informal occult order influenced by chaos magic and experimental music. Purich was seen as the group's leader, but rejected that position and left the group in 1991. After leaving the United United Kingdom and settling in New York City, Genesis married Jacqueline Breyer, later known as Lady J, in 1995, and together they embarked on the Pandrogeny Project, an attempt to unite as a pandrogyne, or single entity, through the use of surgical body modification to physically resemble one another. Fioridge continued with this project of body modification after Lady J's 2007 death. Although involved in reunions of both Robin Gristle and Psyche TV in the 2000s, they retired from music to focus on other artistic media in 2009. Fioridge was credited on over 200 releases during their lifetime. They were cited as an icon within the avant-garde art scene, accrued a cult following, and had been given the moniker of the godparent of industrial music. Pure has used gender-neutral pronouns. So that's a tremendous number of accomplishments for one person to pack into a relatively short lifetime, actually. Jen was unfortunately only 70 when she died, which is pretty young these days. There's no way that I can cover the whole of Jen's career. And I have quite a bit. I've talked a lot about Genesis on this podcast, and I'm sure I will continue to. If you're interested in more, though, definitely check out The Psychic Bible, which was the book that I edited with Jen, or I edited it for Jen. The Psychic Bible, the complete occult writings of the Temple of Psychic Youth and Genesis and Psychic TV. Critical, critically important book, as important as the Crowley Blue Book, Blue Book, Blue Brick, or the Golden Dawn Book. I dedicated five years of my life to making sure that was done right. So Psychic Bible, if you're interested in more. In the meantime, here is One of Genesis Peorage's last conversations, sadly, uh, and my last conversation with her, very sadly. But a lot of really, really important stuff was said in this conversation. A lot of very prescient stuff. A lot of prophetic stuff, you might say, that is is interesting to hear again 40 years later, and I'm sure will be in the future as well. Okay, without further ado, here's Jen. His new book is great, the Team Human one. I haven't read it yet, Gabe. It's great. It's it's just it's him unfiltered. It's like it's fascinating because it's you finally got it's like he's finally got angry enough. I'm around, by the way, just to let you know. Right. He finally got angry enough to just say what he feels instead of, because all of the books have been about 
you know, the looking at the positive sides of things right. and, oh, like, you know, look at this positive future optimistic thing that we could do. And that, this one, he's just like the tech industry is eliminating the planet. Fuck all of you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You stop. Really. Yeah. Let, let, <laughs> There's no positive. <laughs> so in so many words, you know, it's not quite that direct, but, you know, but not, but pretty much. And travel is like so much. Yeah. And they, they, uh, he wrote an article in the Atlantic where he said that all these, I don't know if he told you about this, but he got called into this meeting with all these multi-billionaires who wanted him. It's crazy. I can't believe this was probably published this, but they called him in and he thought that it was, you know, it's all the richest people on the planet. And he thought that they, you know, they wanted him to tell them about new technology or something like that. But they just kept saying, what should we do when the event happens? Yeah. yeah. When, you know, basically what, it, what, what began to emerge is those, they're so scared of everyone rising up against them when people figure out that what's happening mm -hmm. and they're all building bolt holes in New Zealand to escape to. And the real plan is they want to get to Mars on private spacecraft before it all, all goes down. But they were kind of out there. They want to leave that? Oh yeah. That's their plan. This is what he says. Like they're all trying to get on Elon Musk uh, private flights to Mars. So they can leave us all here to die. And, he's, and they were saying, like, if we can't do that, you know, what do we do? He was kind of telling them, well, have you considered being nice to people so they won't want to kill you? And that just didn't compute at all. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And it was a terrifying article. To do it. So what I see, he lets him as like they're separate on the fire. As they quit into the capital or something. You know, like, whatever. And they used to want it to be semi-educated, so we, you know, over the years, first was in the Middle Ages, serfs, and when the, the aristocrats argued, then the serfs had to fight for this, the, the aristocrats and get killed and maimed. And then later on, as cities grew, they needed more artisans, so they allowed people to, to get more skills. And then the Industrial Revolution came, and people needed to be in their factories. So they stuck them all in the cities in terrible conditions. And again, just use them as a resource that was just there to be plundered and exploited by them. And then they realized they needed a certain amount of health to work in the factories. So then they started putting in sewage in Britain, you know, a little bit of education to get people up to a level where they could run the machines and keep everything they needed going. But now we're at this point where that was, and in England anyway, what they did in the end was they realized they wanted education and health and so on. Hi, they came, want me here to check if you were going to order anything for dinner since it was getting late. It's not late, it's only 8.30. They stopped serving at 10. Then, so I've, got, <laughs> then I've got quite a lot of time. Okay. I don't know yet. The, the food is just, I couldn't eat that. Suppose lunch. What about jello? You get jello or something like that? Yeah, can I just get fruit? Oh, yeah, fresh fruit. Okay. Orange juice, water, something like that? Yeah. Apple juice? Fresh fruit. A yogurt? Strawberry yogurt, vanilla yogurt? Strawberry. Strawberry yogurt? Yeah. Can I get three apple juices? Yeah. And a vanilla ice cream as a treat. Mm -hmm. The last 
salad that was sent had a cockroach leg in it, so I didn't eat it. Did you tell the nurse or whoever served it to you so they could take it, was it just down on the, the tray. kitchen and they can get it? No, it doesn't matter. It matters. We don't want no one to well, get it. But it's over there, so. So it was in here? And it's in it was in the, uh, the Calabri salad on one side by the tomato. And I was just about to eat, and then I saw this long leg with a claw on the end. Okay. And I thought, you know, I don't think so. If that ever is, you, you have to let us know so they can correct that and get rid of, you know, so no one else can have that. We don't, it, just in case something, you know. All right. Oh, and a, a black tea, please. Okay. What you said it was pudding? inside of the salad? Yeah, the Calabri salad, yeah. Okay. Can I also have a, a black tea with whole milk and lots of sugar? Black tea and whole milk with sugar. Yeah. What about lots of pudding or something like that? That is what was yeah, yogurt was. Okay. Anyway, that'll get me through the night. That's horrifying, you know, but the cockroach. Not a surprise. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the only reason there was an education and health system in Britain was to keep the workforce strong and healthy and intelligent enough to run machines. But then we got the technological revolution. They don't need us anymore. Now we're just a right. leftover resource. Like, we just... Billions of animals, they feel obliged yeah. at a very low level to feed and protect. If that, I mean, I think... They, but I think that's even faded only away. Only to protect themselves, really. And now they don't even think about that because they're aware of the event. Well, now, I mean, in the next 10 years, everything is going to... Literally almost everything can be done by either outsourcing or AIs. You know, and, so, and except so for service work, you know. Massive populations that are irrelevant. Yeah. And they haven't thought of a way to tell everyone that they don't need us and to think of a way to make it work in some alternative plan because they don't bother with that because they think of us as just a, an animal. That's, and in their view, we're a different species, the lowest species. Yeah. And so at the moment, I, I mean, far from trying to save themselves, they're deciding which way to try and wipe us out yeah. so that we won't attack them and that we won't be dragged on what's left of the resources after climate change comes and breaks everything down. Yeah. Well, I'm convinced that's why Oxycontin was being pushed so hard, you know, in, in basically in the, the Midwest, in, in populations where people aren't doing farming or manufacturing work anymore. Now everyone is everything's been devastated by oxycontin and method mess as well, yeah. methamphetamines, and also the food. You know, I went, the Monsanto is getting sued right now. They're going to have to do between three and five billion dollars payout because they finally proved in court the, the crop killer Roundup uh, Roundup causes cancer, which they claimed it didn't. For thousands of scientific studies, which were all done at UC Davis or other UC schools that are bought and paid for. <laughs> Ag, you know, ag business is the biggest donors to these schools. You but know, there so are some, the research there. some papers that actually mean they knew as well, mm-hmm. which they just didn't, but they buried, you know. But that guy was amazing that took them to court. I mean, probably know more about it than I do then, because I, I just saw the basics. <laughs> There's this one man that, that had, had been using it and got cancer, and he's the one who took them to court. And with his lawyers, who's the one who won? <laughs> I mean for a sort of an ordinary working man to go up against them and win is incredible, mm. especially when he knows he's dying. Wow. 
That's amazing. But he said he did it because he did it for everyone else. And that's what I've been saying today, you know. It's about sh- giving everything to everyone. It's not about taking anything for the self. It's really like, the, way I, the way I've often tried to explain it is you have to view humanity as a species. So if you think of something like an amoeba or a creature, some kind of living, simple creature, if it gets damaged, it will send whatever resources it has to heal itself. If part of it is running out of nutrient, it will move nutrient to where it needs it in order to maintain maximum health of the entire organism. And the human species, or as I prefer, the humane species, is the same. It's one organism. And we have to start dealing with it as a one organism. So if some of it is damaged, whether it be through war or natural events like earthquakes, we should, you know, the, the species should naturally just, without a same thought, send the required resources to take care of that in the best way possible. If there's some kind of, God, it's so hard to think on opposite photo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you no don't, wonder they you like don't, it. You don't, you don't have to. <laughs> so amazing that they, that I see why they give it to food. Yeah. Well, interesting. If, you know, there's a lack of food or some kind of plague or the crops fail somewhere, whatever, then we should naturally just send what's needed mm. to repair that. Yeah. And if we start looking at the species as an organism, there's more than enough to always heal or the nutrient where needed. Yeah. It's just a change of the way you view it, that it's not individuals, it's cells of an organism. And all of them are really reliant upon and connected to each other. And the most sensible, practical, effective way for that organism to be at its maximum health is for it to use whatever it has to heal or repair damage. Yeah. But we don't look at it like that. And what I see coming was that the organism is a bit like a a stage in a locust plague where because they're not looking at it in the way I've just said, but they're ignoring all those different crises, we're at the point just before all the locusts take off and consume anything that they see. Mm. And that's what we're doing in a way with palm oil and so on. Oh, God, yeah, palm oil's the worst. Yeah. So I said there's like a fucking plague of locusts that's just going to consume everything to put off thinking and solving, and we'll just accelerate the destruction of that. That's interesting because there's obviously the locusts are in the Book of Revelation, but they're also in the that the world will be consumed by locusts. But then Crowley turns it around in the Book of the Law, where he says that that people who follow Thelema or Thelemites are like locusts and they'll eat up the earth. Which I take to mean, but the philema is, I mean, there's lots of ways you can take it, but if you take it as people who worship their own individual, their own individuality, like me first, I am God, me alone, yeah. and then they will become like locusts to eat up the earth. Right, exactly, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't fit the uh, the one organism picture. Yeah. You know, it's it's exactly the, 
the behavior that's destroying everything. It presented the behavior that makes those billionaires think that they're somehow exceptional hmm. and superior. Well, my sense of what's happening is because... But I had a vision of, of us being locusts when I was in hospital the other, a few weeks ago. What was that? Just suddenly I saw it. We're locusts. And we're at the point where we're almost ready to take off and just consume everything. What about the William Burroughs thing where he's, or and Geisen, I think, where they, he said, um, they both said, Earth is a space station. The point is to consume it, to get into space. But we are doing that. Hmm. I would read that as a little naive. Hmm. It's not a space station, it's a planet. And use what resources you can. If you, you know, I think we are here to go. If we survive this crisis, we are supposed to colonize and travel through space, but we're not ready right now. Hmm. You know, they had that experiment with the twins. What was that? One astronaut. One of them went up and lived in the space station for almost a year, and the other one stayed on Earth as a control. And the, the one that was in space came back, and he's got a lot of genetic oh, it is. mutation and so yeah, on. I saw that. And they, 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 they were saying that people, are, people aren't able to stay in space for long periods of yeah. time. We're not here. So, and that could just be lack of gravity. They're not sure now. But, well, that makes sense. You know, that's why me and Jay said we got to work with DNA. Before we traveled in space, we had to work with DNA. Like you said, when you're in weightlessness, why do you have legs? Get rid of the legs. You know, create humans with no legs. Hmm. Maybe you need extra arms because it's so complicated making everything work. So have four arms, no legs, and find ways genetically to be more resistant. I'm just to... imagining these sexual positions. <laughs> yeah, well, you can redesign those too. It's just the idea that there's no limit to changing what we look like. That's because we always say, this is, this is just a container. Mm. It's not sacred. That's being used as a control. And still is to suppress women and suppress piercing and tattooing. Mm. Anyone who says they have the right to do whatever they want to their own body. But mm. the way forward for our species has to be letting go of the idea that this is a finished thing. Mm. This is an unfinished project. Mm. And it's the next phase has to be one where we, we redesign ourselves to function the very best in all the new situations that we, we discover. That's interesting. That's interesting. People talk about the the inviability of the in the inviolatability of the of the human body because people are made in God's image. Well, even God, the whole Bible is a story of God changing and becoming less of a dick. So, you know, exactly. So change is part of you know it is in time and it doesn't you know, describe what he looks like either. Yeah, and also everything on the planet is a reflection of God. Mm-hmm. Then. People born without arms and legs and look like God as well. So I think that's just a complete control system mm, anyway. Yeah. That was done just to stop people from realizing truths about the body being our own to design and, and redesign as we choose. Well, I think as CRISPR becomes 
if CRISPR works, and we're not sure it, the body is going to, people's bodies are going to be able to tolerate CRISPR changes, but if it works, people will be able to do almost any, you know, be able to, to alter their genetic code in almost any way. Exactly. Possibly that'll be heritable as well. <clears throat> so to be able to edit out whole diseases or add things or, you know, create, you know, that's, that's the real transhumanism. Yeah. But of course, my sense is it will be only, at least at first, only available to the very wealthy. There was always. And it'll be about life extension because they're afraid of dying. Yeah. But that has to be the next evolutionary step. And evolution, mutation is the law of evolution. You know, that's one of the laws of evolution, mutation. And it can happen naturally in some way. Or we can do it ourselves. But we are supposed to mutate. Hmm. Yeah, that is what what happens. But now we can accelerate that process and we can design it to some degree and we can make choices about it too. When we're watching those guys swimming under the sea with their their air tanks and everything, I've always thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have gills? I mean, if you just swim under the sea like that, you know, and, and then you can have your underwater cities. Mm-hmm. Farm much, fish. Much easier than building cities on Mars. Yeah, exactly. I think that would be a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. So a lot of it is just down. Do not think of imagination as just imagination, but actually as real pop scenes hmm. for change. Well, that's kind of like the core of magic right there. Someone was to ask me what, you know, the real core of what is magic, I would say that the imagination is an actual place and an actual tangible thing, not a frivolous abstraction. Exactly. And and just whatever. And beyond that, you know, any formalizing it past that is maybe not necessary. I'm just saying that's an, you know, actually incorporate that as that's actually just another real layer of life to interact with or draw inspiration from or yeah imagine new, new solutions either for your own life or the planet absolutely i mean what what happened when they discovered dna he was on acid yeah now he could have just thought oh that was an interesting trip but he actually didn't he brought back he, he retrieved that information and changed everything also the apple you know the phone phone and recording song the apple macintosh you know steve jobs is tripping yeah, in in college or whenever after college, and that's where the that's where our modern, you know, digital hallucination comes from. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's changed everything. When I um went to one of the parties, oh god, Alexander Shulgin's house, I went with um Michael Horowitz and Cindy Palmer. Hmm. And there was this really beautiful little party, and because it was in Hill uh, Valley. They had a really nice kind of cottage house with a beautiful garden with trees and everything, you know. Gave me a signed copy of his book, all those different psychedelics that he'd invented. What's it called? Tricol or Tricol, one of those? Yeah, Tricol. I was sitting talking to some people and someone said, oh, these guys are from NASA. And I said, oh, wow. I'm surprised you're here, you know, what, what are you working on? And they said, oh, we're working on Mars. So we're talking about this being earlier 90s. Hmm. And I got, we got talking and, he, you know, and I said, I thought, well, how come you've ended up here with Shulgin and all these 
aging on trippers and midfevers and psychedelic travelers. And they said, well, of course we're here. How do you think we get all our ideas? We all drop acid. Mm. And that's how we come up with new ideas. This was NASA people. Yeah. Wow. And then I thought, you know what? That makes total sense. Interesting. Well, it's like all these Silicon Valley people go to Burning Man now, the heads of Google go to Burning Man, and now the very trendy thing in Silicon Valley is people go do ayahuasca to get um, their idea for their next app that's going to destabilize everything, you know. So that's maybe a bit more out in the open now, but it's still yeah. shocking to think about, you know, those the, although in a sense, I mean, not living in California, it's also like, it's just people who live in California behave like Californians yeah. <laughs> to, to a certain extent. But, but uh, I, I mean, as soon as I thought it through, I thought, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they do that? You know, it's been pretty successful in other cases like DNA's. It, it's got a good rap in terms of inspiration. Well, we're talking about the, the, the future of humanity and other such light topics. Oh, yeah. okay, well, well, we'd have to reimagine it would probably more. And if you don't do that, it's to see how, you know, those billionaires, such for the people with power, control authority, the dicey called us. Control might refuse to reimagine the species because they don't care about the rest and have no interest in their preservation. Right. And they may try to find ways to construct new versions of what we already have. It'll be very much like um, medieval aristocrats. Yeah, well, I think that's what they're doing. I think, I think a big part of this whole far right thing. And they have a certain number of people who wouldn't get their Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's already like that with exactly. baby communities and all of that. So I think that Silicon Valley has become the new Medici city states in a way. And they're so rich and they're so far ahead on the curve beyond everyone else and have so many resources that they really do they are starting to see it like that and i think that one of the reasons why all this far right stuff has swept through society is they want to get people used to this and and think they like push for this idea of going back to that medieval worldview yeah feudalism has become technological feudalism donald trump has been such an asset for them in that sense and I suggested that would happen back in the 8th of the during Tosius. I even wrote a piece about it somewhere. So they worship the sun. And went from Saturday, which was Saturn, to Sunday in order to fit into the Romans. Mm. And the Romans did reduce the persecution as a result. They said, oh, we're just worshiping, worshiping a different god like the ones that you worship on Sunday. And the Romans went, oh, okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> Political deceivers. Yeah. How many Christians even think about why they worship on Sunday? A lot of them don't even read the Bible. Yeah. Well, of course not. So, especially the other New Testament. Yeah, <laughs> they definitely don't read that. Where Jesus says, "Love everyone, forgive everyone." Yeah, I really, really take that. care of the children. You know, no one treat your other poor. You no, know, yeah, it's a poor. Yeah. Well, that's it was in a way I feel like they don't know. follow his words at all. Yeah, 
Well, it's also similar to what you were just saying. In the New Testament, his his commandment, where he basically says, we'll keep doing the Ten Commandments. But since this seems to be too... I feel like the entire history of monotheistic religion is God continually getting frustrated with people. It's just like, okay, here's the covenant. Just follow these ten rules. It's very simple. There's only ten. Just follow these rules, and everything will be fine. And then and then he comes back, and just everything has gone to shit. It's like, okay... Tell you what, uh, everything's forgiven. I will send my son, and Jesus comes down and says, "All right, I see." And this is the whole point of the uh, the Good Samaritan story, where he's, you know, they're going down the road, and the there's, you know, there's somebody is 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 has there someone has crashed their cart on the side of the road, and every it's on it's on Sunday, or yeah. it's on the sat or Saturday, it's on the Sabbath. Yeah, it's on the Sabbath or on the main freeway in. Judea, or I don't think it's Judea, or somewhere else. But somebody's crashed on the side of the road, and nobody's stopping to help because it's all the Sabbath and they can't work. Good, yeah. Except for one Samaritan who's not Jewish who stops to help. So the parable that Jesus says is Samaritan is good because he's doing the right thing instead of following the letter of the law. Yeah. And he's just like, this is constant frustration in the New Testament. I was just like, what is what is wrong with you? It's not about following the rules. It's about the, you know. It's about humanity, kindness, forgiveness, and doing the obviously right thing. And, uh, so he gives the nowhere does he say hate somebody for their sexual orientation, right. hate somebody for any reason whatsoever. Well, it says that in Leviticus, but yeah, Jesus, the Old says, Testament. Yeah, Jesus says specifically, just forget it. <laughs> he says, forget all that. Yeah, <laughs> forget the Old Testament. It's old. It didn't work out. It's not correct. And they, he says, God is not angry. God doesn't want to kill you all. God doesn't want to wipe out your cities. So it doesn't want to give you all plagues. God is love. Simple as that. Yeah. So what do they do? They become more and more obnoxiously cruel and bigoted and start to smile while they burn people alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes to shit again. But you get the, or Jesus says, okay, clearly the Ten Commandments were too much for you. Let's simplify it. One thing. One thing, love love your brother as yourself, but it's exactly what you were saying. That's, we're all, we are one organism. Love your brother as yourself because we are all part of the same thing. It's the same thing that the Buddhists are saying with compassion. We are all one organism. So right. stop hurting yourself. Yes. Does it just cut it out? It's a perceptual law that people have. They think they're, they're separate. Exactly. So, but that was but apparently they've been too told much. they're separate because it suits those who like control. Once you've separated people and you've made them think that there's different types, then you can control them by playing them off against each other, making them suspicious of each other, telling them that certain ones are doing something disgusting, you know, whatever it might be. That's how they, they control through fear and guilt. Mm-hmm. But that's not this, the message they were given by Christ. So. Right. It drives me crazy when I read things that are supposedly Christians, and they're obviously not Christians. I mean, I'm sure there are many thousands of Christians who would happily burn me alive right now or execute me in some way just because one of their leaders or online gurus told them that I was evil and a wreck of civilization, mm. which there are things online that say that by Christians, mm. you know. Oh, there's lots there's other sites that say I'm a Satanist. I would never be that banal. 
it's, it's like what we were just talking about with Liber, with, with the Crowley book, with Liber D, where it's, you know, every time somebody expresses truth, it ends up becoming a system to control. Not every time, hopefully, but so often it has been. Yeah. And that's where the wise person has to be really careful. Jesus also very clearly says, fuck the system several times. <laughs> yeah, when he goes to the temple. Yeah. And he said, we don't need temples. You know, God is inside all of us anyway. Now. Yeah. We don't need any any of this. Throws out the money and was in the money changes. Throws out the people supplying animals for sacrifice. Hmm. Which people forget that that was going on anyway. We're still going on. Yeah. Well, I don't mind. I know. I actually understand animal sacrifice having been to West Africa. And so I see why blood is seen as a part of ritual. And after all, in Christianity, it's still in there. It's symbolic now, but there it is. And Christ is a blood sacrifice. Mm. There's a specific, I think there's a specific take on the, it was specifically says in the New Testament, that the, the reason that Christ was sacrificed is to end blood sacrifice. Yeah. No more blood sacrifice. But now, and I also see war as blood sacrifice. And Absolutely. I certainly see factory farming and torture of animals out of sight and out of mind where people don't even think about it. And they just accept it as, oh, this is how it is. <laughs> that's worse than, that's far, far worse than any, anything anyone does in Santa Rio or anything. It's oh, not oh, even yeah. in the same universe. That's a very difference between, there's a big difference between consciously killing an animal, either for food or for a religious reason. And, or for healing somebody who's sick. Right. And when you, when you sacrifice an animal, bit. normally it's then eaten, you know. Mm -hmm. And if it's if it's had somebody's illness put into it, then it's not eaten. But it's prayed over. It's asked for forgiveness for it being sacrificed. It's told that it may come back in a higher plane. It's treated really well. And it's killed in a humane, as humane a way as possible. Mm. And you do it yourself. So you are responsible for what you've done. Mm. It's not done secretly somewhere else. Right. It's infinitely more humane than anything that anyone just buys off the shelf you know, for a sandwich. It's the same with hunting. You know, if you like hunting or, you know, what yeah. you're talking about. I mean, that's part of human existence, you know, it's like, yeah, it's the, it's the wide scale industrialization of torture that is That's the awful. Yeah. yeah. People but people don't it. even think about it. It doesn't even cross their mind. I know, yeah. And it's got so disgusting when you see some of those documentaries. Yeah. Or now, I mean, you see, like, everything that happened with Trump, there's all these children in, in camps. There's concentration camps all over the in U.S. Cages. In cages. And it's just, oh, it just went by in the news cycle and people never think about it. It's too much, it's too much to think about, so it's just, it's forgotten. And I think now our, we, we live in this supposed information society where all the information is out there. But it's also constructed in such a way that it's presented like a slot machine where it goes by and then 24 hours, it's out of sight, out of mind. And there's more information just to cover it up. So there's no, there's information in the moment, but there's no recollection of what's going on and there's no connecting the dots between. And I think that's where he was genius. I think he figured some of that out. Trump, hmm. he figured out people's attention span was really short and that he could just keep pumping out things to bury the one before. Yeah. And it so didn't even imagine he was lying blatantly. That didn't matter anyway. And he's been very successful with that strategy because people are thinking, Ava. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking and absorbing and considering and deducing, which is what we're supposed to do with information.
Right. Well, I do think to be a bit hopeful about that, I do think that part of that is not the fault of people, but it's the fault of the medium. It seems to be, it's like the medium is the message. It seems to be how social media functions and Twitter and Facebook and these cascade streams of information. Because the other thing that's happening is people are reading more now because of Kindle and they're also consuming, they'll sit and listen to a six hour long podcast or a three hour long podcast in the millions. Really? Oh yeah. Like everyone consumes their information from podcasts now. And so they'll listen to, with in rapt attention for three hours of a conversation on a, multiple times a week. But I've the, never listened to a podcast. It's, it's really it's, it's a whole new it's a whole new thing that's opened up and it's become very saturated. And it's almost like I I in, in a way having a podcast is like the new MySpace. You know, so when I first started doing a podcast, it was still a little bit novel, yeah. not really, but now it's like so saturated that it's like okay, it's like it's like the new form of having a website, but or having a MySpace or a social media, people, everyone has one, but it shows that people are, uh, they do actually have long attention spans and they're really, really hungry for connection with other people, which is what podcasts simulate in a way. They simulate being there for a conversation. Um, mm. and, and also people watch a lot of video online too, but I think that it's really important to keep leveraging media like that or new forms of media. And I do think that yeah, I really was did take away from that Marshall McLuhan book, the medium, the medium is the message. That's really true. More than ever. Yeah. In fact, you're never going to get the truth from Facebook or the, or, or unfortunately the news, me news media right now is optimized for social media, which has just ruined it on, on every level. They tried to take all the news and make it sensational and quick for social media. And then Apple yanked out the rug from under them. But, you know, now you can't monetize news that way. So the journalism has, has, painted itself into a corner for the time being, unfortunately. And and if that goes hand in hand with the government, you know, wide scale persecuting whistleblowers or or, or journalists in, in numbers that they never have been before, and the, the public going along with it has recently happened with Assange, but he's definitely not the only one. He's controversial, but this happened, you know, Obama persecuted more journalists than any other president before him, and it's become worse under Trump. And Trump has just declared war on the press, which is awful. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> so it's a really dangerous situation because... First step to being a dictator. Yeah. It's a really dangerous situation. There was a movie that came out, and you might have seen it a couple of years ago, called Spotlight. You see, it was about the investigative journalism team that broke the story in Boston of the Catholic troop, that the Catholic Church abusing children and how long it had been going on. Oh, no, I didn't even see that one. It was a team of five people at the Boston Globe, and they sat in a room for a year working on that story, and it turned into one article. I seem to remember articles. that. Uh, maybe I just didn't know the title. Because hmm. I did watch something about That would have been it. And that's just the, the economics of that. It's just not possible. When you're, so who's going to, like, if no one can get paid to tell us what's going on, we're just not going to know what's happening. And that's what it's become. You okay? Yeah. Plus, there's a lot of people who write for nothing just because they want to have their name somewhere. You know, young people that want to write will just write for sites that won't pay them. Mm -hmm. So the people who need have been doing that as a living, it's even harder and harder. Right. Because the editors can go, well, you can get so-and-so to do it for $50. Oh, that's, that's, that's a high... <laughs> It's a high number. I know, it is. As soon as I said it, I thought that's a bit high. Yeah. No, people work for exposure. Yeah.
So who's, you know, and meanwhile, the, you know, the, the, the supposed mainstream media is not, I don't know. That's a controversial topic too, but it's, uh, we're having, we're having tea time together either here. Got to have a cup of tea. I always tell people that, you know, my, my, I had my, my, my graduate school was having tea with you in your, in your kitchen in between her, uh, in between chores. Really? Yeah. Is that what it felt like? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's finishing school. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I, I met you, right. You know, I, I, I was, I met you was my, my junior year, my internship after junior year of college. Yeah. And then, you know, so that was kind of, I went from school to learning from you. Huh. It was too bad I missed Doug. He just rushed in while he could. It's yeah. only like 10 minutes. Done another one? No, it wasn't actually. It's interesting. He's, he's finally lost his, his diplomatic poise in the tech industry. He's, he's at his wit's end. You think he's just self-destroying himself? His thing? He's what? Yeah. Is he self-destroying his previous position? I think he's just being, he's being, he's not being political as much in the sense of he's not, I think that he, it seems to me, I could be, you know, putting a, a different gloss on things in the way they actually are. It seems to me that he, for a long time, he thought that the beast could be reasoned with. <laughs> He doesn't seem to think that anymore, you know. So yeah, he, I did think that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I did too. Yeah, everyone did. It's neat. I don't know. You, you, I don't. You don't. I don't think you ever did. No. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of hope that yeah. the internet would be a force for liberation. The wait time in Canada. Oh yeah. What happened then? I'll be flying in Susanna. Uh, I told the Canadian government she has to be there. It's the only way I can see her. Oh, okay. Because she can't get a visa to come to America. You said you were going to hire a lawyer to sort that out? That's good. Yeah, I'm going to have to. You know, they, they know people to go and speak to, which thing to attempt to do to get the visa, who to explain to them they're not trying. They're not coming here to get a job. Mm. She's got no interest in getting a job. With. For a start, it's because she doesn't have a hip joint. She can't have a job that's standing, mm. can't be a waitress, can't work in a kitchen, etc. Can she not stand up for long periods of time anyways? No. Yeah. When she went to for the one of her three monthly checkups with it in Spain, there were different doctors and they had her x rays on the wall. And when she walked in, they thought for me it wasn't her. They expected her to be on crutches or in a wheelchair. Mm. You've seen the picture of it, right? No. Yes. Can't she? She can stand up for for short periods of time. Or? Oh yeah, she can walk for small distances. Okay. But that's how she got into Japanese rope work. Was you know as a counter to the pain, etc. Hmm. Here it is. Is that a pin? Yeah, but it broke. This doesn't look it connected. Broke down there, yeah. it's not connected at all. How does it stay up? I think my theory is she's. Managed to make the muscles strong enough wow. that she can walk without any hip that's, joint. That's incredible. Yeah. It's my fiance's hip. Pain? What's oh, going on? Are they replacing it? Uh, <laughs> no, not yet. No, not yet? What they happened? tried once, look, and it broke. What happened? Like, just wear and tear needed a replacement? Or 
she was born without that joint. Wow. Wow. How'd they do it? She can walk. They hospitalized her yet? Oh, no. Wow. I'm going to give you the oxy early, okay? I spoke okay. to the doc. Just scan you. I'm going to start you on all your neck. She's incredibly tough. Yeah, I can imagine. Obviously, she limps a bit. But I was just telling Jason that she went to the hospital for the three monthly checkup for it. Mm-hmm. And it was different doctors. And they had an x-ray on the wall. And when she walked in, they didn't think it was her. Right. Because they thought they she'd be in a wheelchair, her. you know. A medical phenomenon. She's incredibly tough and really strong-willed to to make it strong enough by walking in. Right. You know, going through the pain. Well, I think that's something you two have in common. Yes, you indeed. are as well. Yes, this is true. Nice. We met and we were instantly attractive. Oh. We still, it was a, a year before we really got together. But right. she's in Spain, obviously. Oh, is she there now? Yeah, she's still there. Where in Spain? Granada. Where's that? In the south, where the Arab Moors were. In the south? Yeah, where the Alhambra Palace is. Okay. I've been to Seville before. That's the south is open. Yeah. Barcelona. Is that nice? What? Where you were? Not a bad place to visit, right? (laughs) I've not been to Granada. I've only been to Barcelona and Madrid. Okay. We met in Madrid at one of my gigs, of course. Mm. Are you a musician? Yeah. Yes, I'm a rock star, amongst many other things. Jen is one of the the most important artists of the last hundred years in music and many different mediums. Philosophy. Yeah. Art world, public philosophy. Soloist, or you're in a, like a band? I have a band. Band? Yeah. Have I had since 75. And my second band was started in 81. The one that's still going. It's more popular than ever. And if you've ever met anyone with tattoos and body piercings, you can thank Jen for it because she's the one that made it a thing. <laughs> and brought it to the public. Very cool. How much melatonin is it for sleep? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'll help me go to sleep. Five milligrams. Slow go. Takes 10 to put me to sleep. <laughs> 10? Yeah. yeah but then it takes about wait. 500 to put me to sleep. Oh my God. Excuse me, it doesn't really touch you. <laughs> you're really only supposed to have two at most. It's just enough to send the signal to your brain that it's night. Those gummies are great. Okay. I take six at a time. Oh my God. If I have that much, I'd have to be groggy the whole next day. Well, I don't. Okay. But I finally fall asleep around 4 a.m. on 5 a.m. It takes at least time to nap them out. But... Yeah, working at night sometimes like can really throw you off. So. Um, it's the lights. It's the um, uh, blue light from LEDs and CFLs or computer screens. Sometimes, yeah, that's all I'm looking at, too. All night, charging, get orders, reading notes. Mm. You can get orange if you get orange-tinted glasses. I know, that's like everyone's like the trend yeah, now. They're really trying to put their work yeah, yeah. really well. Yeah. Really? Is, yeah. That, is that true? Yeah. So I should do that. I changed my entire apartment, so all, all of the LEDs are taped, and the computer screens are not blue, and there's no blue light. It's all natural light. I sleep way better. Yeah. Well, well, Blackout well. curtains have become okay. my best friend. Yeah, so our brains are always going haywire because they think that it's day when it's not, and so nobody ever gets a proper night's sleep, mm-hmm. particularly with phones. No. So everyone's brain is scrambled because of it. 
I completely taped up all the windows in my bedroom with blackout, not just blackout curtain, but blackout film on the, right. yeah, like vinyl, black sticky uh, stuff on the windows. And I felt like it's the first proper night's sleep I'd had in at least 10 years. Oh, it was definitely. Yeah, once I got the oh, curtain. Totally blackout. Yeah, completely black, including oh. any any winking lights or any any LEDs or anything in the room. Jean-Pierre Tourmel of Saudi Sentimental friend. Mm-hmm. When I went to visit him way back in the 70s, he was doing night shifts at a petroleum factory. Hmm. And he had his bedroom totally black like that. Hmm. And I slept in it and I slept for about a day the yeah. first time because I was just so, so completely at, at peace. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You never, you, you never want to wake up because your body doesn't know it's, it's day yet. It was really good, though. Yeah. I'll go out for 24 hours, like, after working, like, three shifts like this. Like, I'll go out for so long because you're wow. so, like, I'll... Here's why. Yeah, I'll get home at, like, 10, and I'll go to sleep. And then I'll wake up, maybe eat something at, like, dinner time. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just go back down. Wow. I had a job without makeup. Well, there was a study they did in Japan. Mm-hmm. So, no, you can set. I just want to get to this IV site now. I know. Good time. They did a study in Japan, I think, a year ago or something like that. Yeah where they monitored people who were sleeping in total darkness versus just having the light of one street lamp oh, reflecting in through a window. And the mm-hmm. depression rates were 70% higher than the people who had just little depression rates, which just had a little bit of light coming in from outside. Wow. Because their brains weren't fully, like, I'm going to mangle it, but their brains weren't fully resting because they thought it was, because if you're just getting the light from one street lamp outside, think about it. It's like your brain thinks it's dawn or... Right. It's preparing to wake up the entire time. I wonder why that makes Maybe that explains some moods of some people like you. Uh, well, <laughs> probably. Fluorescent lights are the worst like in, a, in a hospital or anything like that. Because they give uh, super high rates of blue light, which our brains are not going to process. Mm-hmm. So, but they do it in any any workplace where they want people to wake late, long hours. They always put fluorescents everywhere. They do it in 7-Elevens, too. To keep people awake uh, naturally, it's, it's really screwy people. They just found that city that's in Titicaca. They found one. What's it called? Lake the Titicaca. Area? They said there's there's been this rumor that there was a, a small city there. It's going to take a beer now. It, that was in the in the lake now, and they just found it with lots of that's crazy. bits of gold that they'd that they drop in. The, the local people were dropping gold in, you know, a long time ago. As offerings to the people in that buried city, and they finally found a lot of it. Is this the um, velocity of gold? Yeah, it is. It's the one they were the. Yeah, it, it, that's the one that they've mis- misunderstood. Yeah. Oh my god, that's crazy. Just holding pressure. That's the one that the Spanish were looking for the whole time that they were. Yeah, it was too deep in the water in there for them to ever get there. Wow, that's amazing. A large stone coiled serpent. And the circumcised are facing the eternal city. Yeah, and then put the lidocaine packs on your back. Okay. So this is not the Inca, but it's here. It's a different group. I'm not sure who they are because they live on these islands made out of reeds that they build themselves. But it, it wasn't an Incan city? Oh, the one that's buried underneath? Yeah. I assume it was. I don't know for sure. <laughs> it's amazing how fast we lose... Knowledge and information. I mean, not just this, but a couple of years ago, I went to uh, there was a there was a great youth science fiction bookstore 
in LA mm-hmm. that had all this, all these pulp science fiction books from the 60s and the 70s. There were science fiction writers giving talks there and, and nobody was going there. And I just went in and I felt like it was like this, like it was like a, a hidden Gnostic sect of people keeping old forbidden buried information alive. And that's just a few decades. I know. It's books from the 80s and 90s, books I grew up reading. And that's like now nobody even is even aware of that. Well, that's, as you know, I collect books like that from that era. There's so much great stuff. And that's lost already. That's it's why I collect it. in theory, yeah. but, you know, you know, people aren't exposed to it. So Yeah, but if online just vanishes through an EMP or something, yeah. then they're not yeah. there. Yeah. It's interesting, I made the plot of the plot of the new Blade Runner movies revolves around that, but there's an EMP and everyone's lost all of the information. Oh, is that what it's about? It's part, well, it's part of the background of the It's not what it's about, but it's part of the background, it's backdrop of the movie. Is it any good? In the way for it's, it? it's great. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. Nobody went to go see it. It was a, just like the first one was a bomb. Also, they fall fond of the box. Really? Office. Yeah, now it's like considered a classic. The second one is in some ways better than the first one, I think. In some ways, not. No. Certainly the, the reigning with lots of Japanese and neon, <laughs> and it would become a classic thing they all copy. Yeah, it was the, you know, copied by every techno yeah. and synthwave album ever. <laughs> and other films, too. Mm, yeah. It's become the, the, the full back science fiction environment, hasn't it? Well, it's also become our model for the future that we very faithfully made real, as yeah. opposed to the Star Trek one. Like I'm going to take your blood, Gook. God, I'm never going to have my cup of tea. Sorry. Well, <laughs> leave me alone. Leave me alone. Set. Be out of here. <laughs> Anything else you can come up with to keep me? Oh, I, I, I probably could. If you'd like me to stay. <laughs> no, I want my See, we're very lovely. I yeah. want my cup of tea <laughs> before it goes cold. I can reheat it if, if you need to. I'm sorry. What? I said I can reheat it if you, you need can? me to. Yeah, in the microwave. Oh, I might get you to do that. I will. No problem. I owe it to you, right? Yeah, it's your penance. <laughs> Naked and afraid. Oh dear. Her hands infected in the jungle, not good. I don't know why they want to do that. Naked and afraid. You ever watched it? No. No, I don't really watch TV at all. But I don't either. I don't have cable. I see it at the gym sometimes, but it's, that's about the extent of it. When I went to see Caress and Jeunesse in California, Lennon had it on the TV. And I got into it with him. We watched several episodes and had lots of fun making up jokes and, and making commentary as it went along. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. I'll go heat it up. Okay. That's all you think. Don't, don't stand between Jen and tea or ketamine. <laughs> <laughs> you should know these things. This is true. <laughs> I was so unhappy when they said I couldn't go and go on having ketamine after they took me out of the ice. What did you say? Why not? Why is that a rule? <laughs> Rules are made to be broken. It, well, this okay. is working. What was right? the response to that? Oh, we, we, only show, we only use it in the ICU. I said, yes, I understood that, but why? And it works when it's made okay and I don't feel anything. Why make me feel it again? Yeah. Why, why not? Oh, well, the rule is we can only give it you in the ICU. We're moving you out of the ICU. Then leave me in the ICU. No, we can't do that. It was like... Oh. He said, you're not being logical. Well, this is why I thought finding a patient advocate or something like that might 
help get around those rules and have them change those rules for you. No, that one was a really strict one, if Well, that, to be fair, you know, like when you said before that the third leading cause of deaths in America is medical accidents, almost all of those are from anesthesia. Are they? Yeah, it's, it's, that's the biggest danger with medical care. It's anesthesiologists get the anesthetic mix slightly wrong and then the person doesn't wake up. Uh-huh. And ketamine is considered part of that. It's administered by an anesthesiologist. Really? Which is so, I, it makes sense, honestly, that for their insurance, that probably what the rule is that it can only be administered by somebody who's an anesthesiologist, but not casually. Even though it's not really anesthesia, it's probably considered part of the part of the mix because it is that once anesthesiologists will use together seven or eight different things to create the anesthesia it has to be done on the spot it's not a one one size fits all and so they get they get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and they get paid more than anyone else because well, this was up, you know. in the icu it was a drip with a button okay and okay. i could press the button every 10 minutes and at the beginning they gave me a one one of ketamine each time and I said, oh, it's strong enough because I have a very high tolerance. So they put it up to two. And I went, that's not strong enough. I have a very high tolerance. And they put it up to three. And I said, that's not strong enough. Mm-hmm. And eventually we got them to five. And I said, that's better. That's working. Mm-hmm. So we'd already been through that process. And I was on a trip. So it would, it would just be another bag of the same thing. Right? And also, I don't think you can OD on catching them. You just carry them. Yeah. Yeah, they'll go into a KO and freak out, but they won't die. I'm just guessing it's classed on paper as an anesthetic and therefore right. administered under certain circumstances because they their insurance will freak out. And, you know, they you know for their malpractice, malpractice insurance is so expensive as well. I know, even Lady J had to get over a million. Wow. Well, you know, cover the years. Wow. And even when I was a teenager, I got my wisdom teeth out and they gave me ketamine as part of the drip, but it was 14 other things. And they just stuck a needle in my arm. And then I woke up 10 minutes or 10 hours later with no recollection, like just like the 10 hours had gone. That's just a total anesthetic, isn't yeah. it? General. Yeah. So yeah. Like, ketamine was one of the 14 things in it. So along with valerian, I think, but all these other. And Michael, when Michael Jackson died, he was, you probably remember, he was like basically paying someone to administer. Oh, wow. uh, but what was it, profanol or there was profanol? Yeah. yeah. Wow. I thought it ended up being classed to homicide. Did it? I thought I saw it on a TV show, but it never sounded. So I'm not sure. I don't know. That happened right near where I was living at the time. Because the doctor was, you know, irresponsible and he shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. Yeah, it was a shady situation. He wasn't even a real doctor, was he? Yeah, no. I, or he had been and sounded like mob doctor type. Yeah. <laughs> And Prince, too. That was very sad. That was profanol, wasn't it? Was it? I think so. Jesus. I mean, there's a sort I of that was conspiracy the theory that they were both murdered with profanol. Oh. Well, they both were very outspoken against the music industry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it was what, Diana Ross? No. I see the one that was... It was with Bobby Brown. Whitney Houston? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, she, yeah, yeah. Was she on profanol? That was a... It was a heroin overdose, wasn't it? Was, was it? Crack or heroin? I can't remember. Mm. And she'd been on crack for a long period of time. That's true. Why is the the music industry so hard on people? 
Maybe that's not a pleasant question to ask. The, the workload they give, now if it's successful, they work out a schedule for you and they have assistance to make sure you do everything you're supposed to. You have to go to dancing rehearsals and hair fittings of clothes and photo shoots and interviews and and then the tours they do are just endless and complex and really really draining and they get no cat they become just this this being that's just being sucked dry by your record mm-hmm. and you can give them no rest and no chance to think or take a deep breath or anything and so they end up exhausted beyond anything most people are aware could, could be. Mm. That so tired it's beyond. And then somebody tries a bit of coke and they go, oh, oh, at last I can feel a bit better, you know. Mm. And then, of course, then they can't sleep and so it gives them mm. something to sleep and there it starts. Mm. And also they don't want to think about how what they wanted to do because they're up to sing has become this industry built around them by people they hardly know. And they, we, we hold them to the label and they're under contracts they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And they owe you know millions of dollars in recoupable royalties. Mm-hmm. And it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And it, it literally eats them up. Just each sense. I feel like the the fact that it has to be there has to be constant physical performance, yeah. and it has to be always be exactly at the highest, you know. Like, yeah. yeah, that's it's, it's and so have to go to all the right parties, mm-hmm. just you know, fashion shows, be seen at this, that, and the other event. Ugh. Is there an aspect where people are encouraged to use drugs, or people just do to cope? Many people just do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the Grateful Dead, they all started doing heavier and heavier drugs because they were touring all the time and they were just you know, exhausted. And Jerry Garcia was like heavily into heroin and pretending that he was still into psychedelics. Mm. He never stopped. Wow. And that's what killed him. And at first, the rest of the band went, oh, how could you, Jerry? And they protected him by never saying that that's what he was doing. You know, if he was slow or seemed to nod off, they'd just say he's tired or mm. he can't be here today. You know, mm. they would always make excuses. And then they started doing it too. Yeah. And the road crew were doing it too because they were, oh, no, God. It's inescapable. Well, they, they were doing these tours with that huge PA system. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they would erect oh, somewhere. The world of sound, and they would take it all down. Then they, the, the roadies, would have to pack it all away correctly into all these different trucks, and then drive to the next place immediately. So they never even had the opportunity to sleep. So they had to do something. So they were just all on speed and heroin and everything and anything, because the only way they could keep working was doing that. And several just died. We were talking about earlier about with the GoFundMe where you were saying that everyone just assumes, oh, if you're a musician, you must be rich and everything must be all worked out for me. And my perception has been quite the opposite. You know, <laughs> It's like people who have day jobs 
and better off. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, any creative people for the most part. Plus, we don't have any guarantee there's money next week. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard to, you know, like I said, eight or nine hundred dollars. And one week, one month behind on my co-op fee, which is around a thousand. Because there's the electricity bill in there too, which varies. And every year they co-op make it more. Mm. You know, so it's gone up a lot since I moved in. Is there anything you want to say to the uh, the people who donated through, for the GoFundMe? It was one of the happiest moments in my life so far. It was this moment where I realized that the Topi tribe had happened. I knew there had to be a way for it to be seeded and to grow again, but there needed to be T-O-V-I, Topi. But I also knew that there wasn't a way that I could see that you could, we could deliberately construct it because that would be too much like what we did last time and that had been done, you know. So all I could think was there must be a natural, organic way for it to happen. And so I was just watching and I was noticing that there was a lot of the, the positive topi energy around the Facebook page and Instagram and so on and at concerts that there was a lot of really deep, loving trust coming at me. And people were telling me how much it, it, it made a difference in their lives, things we'd done so far and said. And sometimes they'd say, why, are you going to restart? You know, you're going to start Topi again? And we said, we can't just start it again. There can't be an again. So then you did the GoFundMe, and there it was. I just suddenly saw it. It's happened. It's made itself. It's generated itself spontaneously, the perfect way. Nobody tried to make it. Nobody tried to set it up. It's just been understood intuitively. And the word from Kuhn originally from the first visions by cosmosis, the transfer of positive energy from one humane being to another, by cosmosis in a plant. Hundreds of people wrote messages that showed they truly understood the idea of integrity and, and trust and surrender and kindness and sharing on a level that's really unusual right now yeah. with this mean generation and the, the sort of obsession with selfies and self-image through all the social media. And I thought we've broken through some of the social media traps and there they are. This is my people. I'm one of them and they're one of me. And it was so beautiful. I thought, at the very least, now I can, I can rest because Topi with the eye is that big. It's a fantastic moment. And the other thing that was great was, of course, this is how it would have to happen. It would have to be self-generated, but also not like last time. So it's time. There's no way you have to dress to be recognized as part of it. No hairdress, no hairstyle that you need to have in order to be recognized to be part of it. They're just part of it when necessary. And they kind of rise out of the, the mass of the population and are recognized and counted. And then after they've done what they need to do, they sink back into it again and are invisible. And there's no need for any headquarters, no need for any archives. So there can't be any Scotland Yard raids on an archive to try and steal what you've got in 
destroy the, the, the core of the ideas and the writings. And you know, the, the only thing that seems to have continued on, which I think is what it was for, is the psychic cross as a tattoo. Mm. There's still lots and lots of people getting those. Alice in Psychic TV, who's been in it since 2003, said to me a few weeks ago that she was finally going to get a psychic cross tattoo because she could see how special it was. Mm. And she didn't feel like she was joining a gang. She was just going to say, I agree with this way of seeing life and, and taking care of each other. This is my declaration that I'm going to live the loving life. And that's the only obvious way people can be spotted, mm. being connected intellectually with it. You know, there's no need for access points. There's no need for newsletters, although people can write things and put them wherever they want. It's truly anarchic and simple and natural and organic. Cosmic organicism. <laughs> the whole thing just suddenly has reached its next level. All on its own. It just took the patience of waiting. Mm. I always thought that could happen, but I didn't know if I would ever see why. I feel really honored to have been able to see that next step take place, which also means that people are, are self-motivating too. They're choosing. Yeah to be connected, they're choosing yeah. Yeah. to take action. Yeah. They're choosing to give that what most people find the hardest to do, which is some money. Yeah, and and, and it wasn't just me, me either. I mean, Douglas and Chandra both did fundraisers. Like I did the first. But that, that was the phenomenon that just made me, I was in the hospital when it happened, as you know, and I was just thrilled with a big grin jumping up and down on the bed, <laughs> saying, Great. it's worked. It's finally worked. Mm. Look, the tribe is here. Yes. Do you have a sense of what it should become going forward? No. Well, maybe. <laughs> Not what it should, but what, what, what certain things might happen. People will. There are already people doing this because the Dopey documentary that's being made, too. It's, it's reminding people the dash between the re and the mind. It's reminding people of the core of what Topi was, not just the sensationalism, but that it was actually a really sincere attempt that we did nothing else or everything we did was part of it for 10 years, day in, day out, day in, day out. And we improvised as we went when we came up with a problem or an organizational requirement we would just what's the best way to do this and of course pass on those those ideas to other people too and who would have thought it could spread the way it did but my my sense sense is that there's a chance it could become a really vibrant option for how people behave Mm. as times get harder too you know there should be Small groups of people, maybe they just choose to share a house and combine their money so that they're only paying one or two rent or mortgage and and the cost of food and so on. So they can all maximize what they get out of the amount they have. Once it's full, they get more. And if they've all got a car, they don't need us. If there's seven people in the house, 
when they order a car, do they need seven cars? Uh, they can probably work out a, a schedule where they just have three and they just negotiate it to use them. Same with anything else they've got. Yeah. Whoever's got the best computer can make that the core computer of the, the group and everyone else is like a satellite thing. That's going to be really important, particularly as things get worse in material conditions. People banding yeah. together is the best survival. That's the strategy. only way, yeah, that's what I think. And I think that not survivalism, not isolating off in the woods is a terrible situation. Oh, no, no, just combining what they have in a, in a positive way mm. so that they can get through the worst of it. So, yeah, collect little, little collectives, little, little communities, not communes, but groups of people. Who, and it's not always easy, but we find ways to share everything. Mm. It's also really rewarding to share everything and stop thinking of this is mine and this is theirs, etc. You can have that as part of it, you know. Just to choose what you have that you share with everyone and what else you have that you don't want to share is yours. Mm. You know, there shouldn't be any regulation or so. Any any tensions creative just to try and live by a particular idea. That's always a disaster. Mm. Just common sense. The hardest sense of all. He looks stupid, doesn't he? He's being protected right now. I hate the way they make it a bit ridiculous later. Yeah. There was this show on this new, this guy Reza Aslan, who's a scholar. Who... I've seen that name around lately. He wrote this book called Zealot, and he is a Muslim, but he wrote this book called Zealot, kind of attacking, or saying, it wasn't really attacking, it was saying, but painting Christianity as, as an extremist group, and people got very upset about it. But he also, he he went from, he pivoted from there to creating a documentary show where he went around to look at different religions, and the first one he did was the Agori. And ah. he did it with this very smarmy, condescending attitude. Oh, I look at these. Whole, you look at these people doing. Uh, them in their ashes and dirt. Yeah, with their weird rituals, and it's just like, get the fuck out! <laughs> it was offensive. Oh. I was my religious sensibility were offended. <laughs> I think they're amazing. Yeah, I watched a documentary about one of them becoming officially initiated as an adori on one of the burning gets somewhere. It was great. But how he was going to have to eat something from a human skull. Mm. It was a bit of a, a brain of a person or something. Be sure it was cannibalist. But he was young and kind of scared, but deadly serious. Mm. Wow. That was a close one. Mm. Remember when we met Fadlananda? Yeah. Yeah, he was great. And I ate the potatoes? Yes. I got one too. You did? Yeah. We were also wounded. It's, Anna, it's Anna hard did. to remember the details. Anna ate one as well. Did, yeah. did you? Did both of you get sick as well? Because I got, I got really no. Sick. I, I don't have to get sick. Yeah, I had a small one. <laughs> we had to eat them for politeness. <laughs> I was all about it. I expected it. to be vomiting that afterwards. I was all about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna eat the eat the, eat the potatoes, <laughs> cooked in burps fat. Were they? That's what I, when I got back, that's what I, I told all that story. And she said they were un, undoubtedly cooked in human fat because that's how they do them. No, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Really all that matters is whether you get sick. Mm-hmm. How long were you sick? Uh, not that long. Oh, not good. that long, less than a day. 
Oh, that's all right. So it could have been bad, but you know, it was uh, it was fine. It passed very Maybe you were just getting rid of some bad bad thoughts. There you go. You know, whenever me and Jay did a ritual, we'd always have a bowl, and it was called the bad thoughts bowl. From psychedelics, or yeah, yeah. So if we ever threw up, went in there, and we just saw it as a positive that we we were getting rid of bad thoughts either from ourselves or from other people about us, you know. Mm. So it was positive. That makes that makes good sense. Yeah. Well, no sense makes sense. Mm. Of course. But yeah, we used to have the bad thoughts, Paul. We still do when we've done a couple of things with Susanna. Mm. Had a bad thought, Paul. That's very sensible. Managing managing psychedelic space in general, anyway. Yeah. Instead of holding on to it and having bad truth. It's you know, I don't know if it happens here, but. When we went to university and were fresh men, fresh people, all the different societies had tables and tried to get people to join because the more people who joined, the more money they got from the university for their society so they could do more things with the money. And it's that is what it reminds me of that, that there's all these different so-called wizards and... Gods, apparently, and they've all got their little stalls, mm-hmm. and some of them are just, they're offering free beer, and some of them are saying, oh, if you join our society, we're having a big dance tonight, and there'll be lots of girls there, and others are just waving their flags and jumping up and down in bright-colored clothes to get your attention. And like I said, there's someone sitting quietly in a pair of jeans and a T-shirt reading a book, and they hardly even notice them, but they're the one who's actually got the information. Mm-hmm. And the smallest number of people, but all the people who are part of it, are there because they recognize truth and they want to learn and grow. I would guess that's always how it's been. But it's all part of the control mechanisms, distraction, entertainment instead of information. Yeah. It makes me think always about you probably remember the, uh, the movie, The Holy Mountain. Yeah. There's that bit where they're climbing the mountain to get to enlightenment, and they stop at the Pantheon Bar, which is like a crazy party of all these people claiming the great spiritual truths they've learned through psychedelics and, and all of this stuff, and it's just a complete distraction. Or it's like what you're saying, or it's like a, or it's like the money changers in the temple. It's all oh, these yeah. people claiming that, you know, making a big deal of themselves, putting their ego out there, and then eventually be trying to attract you with the, the jumping about. Yeah. And that's what it's become now. It's what it's become online. And it's, you know, when I put out Generation Hex, Gen Hex, as they say, uh, you know. That was a really big deal, wasn't it? Yeah. Thank you. I basically said in that book, I mean, look, magic is going to become the next big youth culture. And at the time, the people I knew who were into it were like, you, Jay, Kali, a couple people back in California, you know, it's like, and, and, you know, a few people, like you didn't introduce me to Scott for 11. Well, it's maybe, you know, a dozen people at most. Yeah. And now it's become, now it's true, you know, it's like all of, everyone is into magic now. Every, you know, every young woman in really? Brooklyn and is a, a witch. And it's like, oh yeah, it's oh, that's huge. True. I've noticed that. That's, yeah. it's mostly that, but, but even... You know, even on, you know, right wing people are into magic. Like everyone's into magic. And it's so the spell worked. Everyone's become magicized. But now everyone's setting up their little stall to, you know, say, I'm the grand poobah. 
and none of it, it's all. Well, you know, unfortunately, that happens every time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it must be built into the uh, algorithm, <clears throat> the cultural algorithm or something, because a version of that seems to happen each time. In Crowley's time, the media were very much different. And so once he got attention, there wasn't really a lot of people competing, were there? Of Mathers, I guess. Well, Crowley was pretty. I mean, he he Crowley saw himself as competing with the Theosophists and trying to cut off part of the market share, and he was pretty cheeky about it, which is why he called himself the Master Theorion to to poke fun of the Theosophical higher master, ascended masters, and things like that, and why he he promoted himself. He wanted to promote himself as the world teacher instead of Krishnamurti, which was pretty funny, but it also you know an ego trip. But it was pretty funny how he did it to be honest. But I think it was the same then. I mean, if you read the reviews in the back of the Equinox, he was just very bitchily like cutting down all of his rivals and things like that. And to be fair, his the stuff he was writing was of, you know, way better quality than any and was actually giving people techniques That's to true. use, which is none of them were you know, Theosophy doesn't give you any techniques. If they do, you really have to dig for them. Where Crowley wrote it all down, say what you will about him. I mean, as somebody who wrote it down, it all works as described in in, in the book. But he doesn't talk about Austin's fair in any kind of really, in a way that makes you immediately want to run a find his work. Crowley. I don't think he ever talks about him. I think he mentions him briefly as this dark person that was oh, oh that's right yeah he does he does because he left his group so now he's a black father yeah i found out something interesting recently which is that it's very likely they were lovers for a short period of time and then had a spat and falling out and that's why there's a crowley poem where that compares them to horace and set the incestuous brothers and, and oh, wow. it's a torrid love affair but it, i think they they uh it's i think it's an all too it's an all too human story it's very possible isn't it because Spare was seeing the orgasm just as an orgasm. So he wouldn't necessarily be averse to having some kind of love affair with Crowley. Mm-hmm. And Crowley would fuck anything. <laughs> so it's possible. Yeah, Spare would too. Yeah, yeah, mainly women. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's any... He doesn't talk about um, gay sex at all in his no. stuff as far as I know. So, But they were decadent artists. Yeah. Well... Spare did a lot of beautiful drawings in the yellow book, which was also had Aubrey Beardsley in it. And they drew, drew, very, drew very similarly at the beginning, and just pure black and white. It's a crazy, such a crazy life where he was considered, they gave him the yellow brick road right out of school and decided he was going to be the next big artist, and then they just took it all away at 26. Yeah. Doug said they have a new drug they want to use with you, but the insurance yeah. won't improve it, it. Approve it at least not without a fight. Yeah. What the, that that might be somewhere where a lawyer could help. Yeah, that's what a fight. What's the fight for? Mend something to get them to get the insurance. So my oncologist is fighting. Oh well. Did they say why they wouldn't give it to you? No. Just always saying no, that the game. Okay. Expensive, you know, it's a new uh, drug. I mean, the one they've been giving me, Adifa, is still an exper- considered an experimental drug. And it's $24,000 for 30 days. How many days do you need? I was taking every day. 
for indefinitely. Until they decided something else. What does it do? Which one? The 24,000 one. I don't know. Hmm. But it's supposedly meant to help stabilize everything. You know, all the white cells and stuff. And slow down any advance of the leukemia. The new one is supposed to be even better. So. <laughs> when I was due to go to Australia, before I ended up in the horse pistol, I realized I would run out of the pills, the Adifa pill, where I was there. And so I rang up CVS Special Pharmacy and said, can you send me just 12 pills so I can go to Australia and not run out? And they said, cool, yeah, we can do that. Hmm. I'm like, okay, great. How much would that, would, if, I, if I have to pay, would I enter it? Yeah, you'd have to pay. And so I said, well, how much would that be? She said, I'll just check. $24,000, she said. Probably. Oh, well. I guess I can't do that now. She says, press this plate, me after the AMT breaker. That's what I, I really loved about it when I first went, was the fact that it was all integrated to drive it. And it wasn't considered worthy even of mention. It was just how everything is. Yeah. 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 It's just part of life. And even here, I can't think of anyone. Like, often my most non odd friends will always tell me the strangest magical experiences that they've had. And those seem to be more intense for them than people who aggressively pursue it. So, so I think that it's obviously a mistake to decide there's something special about you if you just rediscover part of the human experience. You know, but people always use it as a way to put on a uniform and a badge and claim authority. Mm. Mm. But I, I guess that's a broader question, too. I mean, does there need to be some type of magical cultural revolution? It's like all, all the scripts from the 60s onwards, whether it's the, you know, the Robert Anton Wilson and Topi, obviously, you know, it's like, is that still a valid strategy of trying to push for magical awareness in the culture? Yes. Okay. And what? If I, you know, like I was just saying about Toby with the ads, the strategy has to change. Yeah. But the intention for exposing the corruptions of the current systems is really important. The encouragement of people learning to combine with each other is going to be really important for survival. Okay. You know, so that certain things become far more urgent than others. And whether it's got anything to do with magic per se to the outside world is kind of irrelevant. It's the, it's the strategies for survival yeah. and com combining resources and teaching the rest of the, um, the uh, society's compassionate responses to issues and problems and how to share and be kind to those become really important. And totally with an eye is about all of those. And again, I guess what you did with the GoFundMe exposed to that's being understood. And that's really hopeful. It's another reason I smiled and was so happy. Somehow or another, people absorbed that message. We, we weren't sure that it had worked. So, they're really proud of everyone. You know those 
those little boxes with lots of things that look like nails in them, and you put them against your face and show. And mm-hmm. it's, that's what it, it was a bit like that when there was a crisis that the tribe had to try and deal with. It was like it rose out of the population as a new yeah. And then it sunk back in again. But it was there. Uh, it was a bit like that. Yeah. It was glad to be able to facilitate that. I'm so grateful. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.